You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now present Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith. Hello, Radio Maria family, and welcome to this week's edition of Your Life is Worth Living, Reflections from the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. For over 50 years, Archbishop Sheen captivated audiences on both radio and television. Millions tuned in each week to hear his messages of hope and encouragement. On this week's broadcast, we will share a few of those reflections with you. And so we'd encourage you to sit back and relax and enjoy one of the greatest communicators of our time, the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. Hello, Radio Maria family, and welcome to another edition of Your Life is Worth Living here on Radio Maria Canada, a Catholic voice wherever you are. I'm your host, Al Smith, and I want to thank you for joining me for this broadcast to listen to a little bit of the wisdom of the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. On today's broadcast, Archbishop Sheen will give a reflection entitled, How Men and Women Love Differently. And, of course, it couldn't be any farther than the truth, uh, from the truth, I should say. And uh, men and women do love differently. And Bishop Sheen took a moment out of his uh, busy schedule to talk to a nation about that. And so we'll share that broadcast from the 1950s. And then he will give a talk to young people on the topic of love and sex. And so, uh, again, and he is very delicate and kind and of course, uh, who other could, uh, who you would trust with your teenagers uh, to talk about such a topic as you would with Bishop Sheen? So he will share that reflection later in the program today. And so I would encourage you now to sit back and relax and enjoy one of the greatest communicators of our time, the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. Friends. I suppose one of the reasons why Cain turned out badly was because there had been no books on child psychology written in his time. Those who have read many psychologies, I suppose, have become convinced, as most of us have, that during the last 10 or 20 years they've been written for abnormal people. How would you like to hear a little psychology for normal people like yourselves? There are 10,000 people that are running toward an abyss. And one man runs from it. He seems to the others to be in flight. And when indeed there are so many abnormalities, it behooves us to recall that there is really a psychology for normal people. And we will try to explain it tonight in this lecture. First of all, Uh, by showing the difference between knowing and loving, and then showing the difference in knowing and loving between man and woman. First of all, our soul 
has two faculties. One faculty is the faculty of knowing. The other is the faculty of loving. We are like an animal inasmuch as we have sensations and passions, but this is something which is specifically human. Knowing belongs to man's intellect or reason. Loving belongs to our will. The object of the intellect is truth. The object of the will is goodness or love. Now, they both operate in quite a different fashion. This is how our intellect operates. Whenever our intellect knows anything, it always brings it down to the level of our intellect. Suppose, for example, a teacher, must be many teachers listening, uh, they often have the experience of explaining some abstract principle to children. They always have to do that in concrete terms. They, if the child is to know and understand, the principle must be brought down to the level of the child's intellect. That is why sometimes when we want to memorize something, we make an association in our intellect. It's something that we know. I remember once I was to meet a man by the name of Lummick, and someone in my office said, now, try to remember that name, because I'm very poor at remembering names. And the secretary said, now, just remember uh, that his name rhymes with stomach. Do you know what I called him? Kelly. <laughs> you take something very simple that is known. Take a flower in a crannied wall. Well, you bring that up into an intellect like Tennyson, and it comes out as a poem. The flower in the crannied wall, if I knew what you are, root and all and all, I should know what God and man is. So the object of the intellect is in itself. Now notice the difference with the will. The will always goes out to meet the object that it loves. If, for example, you love music, you have to meet the demands of music. If you study a foreign language, you have to go out to meet the demands of that language. If, for example, a young man is courting a woman and she loves poetry, well, he's very foolish if he tries to quote mathematics to her. Now, the, there is a, a profound difference between uh, knowing and loving from this point of view also. Uh, my little angel is, is cleaning the backboard. I had a little conference with him beforehand. He said that he was going to do everything very, very quick tonight because I was talking about spiritual faculties. Here is another law of the, of the intellect or reason. Whenever the, the mind knows anything that is below it, it elevates that thing by knowing it. Whenever it knows anything that is above it in dignity, it to some extent degrades it. Now let us take, for example, 
the knowledge of a scientist. The scientist gives us physics, biology, or our mind, as we know the birds and the flowers and the trees, draws all of these things into itself, and the mind gives them a new kind of existence, a new kind of being. We spiritualize the whole lower universe. That was the reason that wise old Aristotle said that the mind of man is a microcosmos, a little universe containing the whole world within itself. And as it knows things that are below it, it ennobles it. That is the basis of the, the Jewish hymns of praise. For example, the Psalms of David and the Benedici Day, the three youths in the fiery furnace. God is praised for the, the clouds, the sky, the ocean, the mountains, and everything in the universe. This is incidentally the nobility of human knowledge. The fact that it spiritualizes everything that is below the mind. Now when you come to something that is above the mind in dignity, oh, then it's degraded because we have to pull it down to our level. For example, you are listening. What does my angel look like? It's hard to picture an angel. My angel has a 21-inch wing spread. You try to bring the knowledge of God down to your intellect. It's almost impossible. That is why we have to, in the natural order, negate many things about earth in order to know God. Incidentally, that was one of the fine insights of the play, was it not, Green Pastures, where God appeared as just a common figure on the stage. No attempt to approximate deity. It's always good theater, therefore, in a movie, for example, not to show the person of Christ, because one would miss his divinity by making him purely human. Now, we come to the will. And here, the operation is just the contrary, because we said the will always draws everything to itself. When the will loves anything that is below it, it degrades itself. Take, for example, suppose the primary love of man was money. Man would become like gold, cold, hard, and yellow. Suppose it's carnality, just living for the pleasures of the flesh alone. Man degrades himself because we always become like that which we love. A man loves alcohol, he becomes an alcoholic. Degrades himself, pulls himself down by loving that which is beneath him. If a man loves something that is above him, then he becomes a noble. That is why it is important for you, and for everyone in fact, to have the right kind of ideals,
the right kind of hero. Because we tend to imitate. Whom do we love? A player of a percussion instrument? Is he an ideal? A moaner? A soldier? A patriot? A saint? You can readily see. The higher the love, the more human dignity is lifted up. That is why, to a great extent, the level of any civilization is the level of its womanhood. Because when man loves a woman, he has to be worthy of her. The higher she is in virtue, nobility of character, truth and justice and goodness. The more a man has to aspire to be worthy of it. History of civilizations could actually be written in terms of the level of woman. Now this is the difference between uh, knowing and loving and this helps answer a riddle or not a riddle, but a question sometimes people ask. Why is it that very learned people are not religious? Now, that question must not point to the fact that people who are religious are not intellectual. But we must remember that the intellect and the will operate in different ways. The intellect draws something to itself, and the will always goes out to that which it loves. Now, take, for example, a chief of police. Does a chief of police know anything about robbery? He certainly has a fine knowledge of robbery. He knows how to get into banks. He knows how to break into houses. Probably the chief of police has most of the burglar's tools. But does he ever rob? No, he does not love robbery. See, there's no intrinsic connection between the two. Take, for example, the train announcer. Does a train announcer know where the train goes? Yes. Does he ever go there? No. <laughs> and so it's possible, as you see, for people to know something about, about any uh, particular science or art and still not love. Thomas Aquinas said, the least Love of God is worth more than the knowledge of all created things. This has been a very abstract lesson uh, so far, and I hope now that we can make it a little concrete. And it will be a little more concrete if we tell you that now we're going to be concerned with the difference between a man and a woman in knowing and in loving. I hope that I start no disputes in families this evening. The first difference between a man and a woman is that a man is concerned principally with things and a woman with persons. That's the first difference.
Hence, a man is much more interested in business than a woman. A man's interest is much more remote. A woman's interest is more immediate. A man's interest is the abstract. A woman's is more concrete and uh, intimate. A man is concerned with ends and goals and purposes. A woman is more concerned uh, with something that is very proximate and close and near and dear to her. And because a woman is more interested in persons, a woman is much more inclined to gossip. That is not necessarily a fault any more than talking about business. Ever notice, hear a conversation of men on a train? Almost always business. As for gossip, a woman doesn't need to believe everything she hears, but at least she believes she can repeat it. And it is this that causes sometimes misunderstanding. For example, a man will come home from the office full of business. And he will say, listen, dear, today I got an order for 250,000 nuts and bolts. We were the only factory that was able to supply those in greater Manhattan. You know what his wife will say? Dear, how do you want your eggs? <laughs> and then the other way around. Man is reading the newspaper. The woman comes in, the wife comes in and says, Notice anything new? <laughs> Why is it, after thousands of years of civilization, husbands have never been able to pick out hairdos and new hats? <laughs> now, though there is this difference, Understand they complement one another, and very beautifully, after all, this is the future, and this is the present, and both are needed to make a happy family. A second difference between the love of a man and the love of a woman is that a man will always give reasons for loving. A woman gives no reasons for loving. I must be right on this one. <laughs> For example, a man will say, Oh, you're beautiful. I love you because your teeth are pearly. And a woman just says, I love you. Her heart is autonomous. Man's reason is always mixed up. His love is always mixed up with, the, with his reason. Men generally write the love song. That's why I love you. You're the cream in my coffee. You're the salt in my stew. You're my Wendell Bonnet. You're my Shakespeare sonnet. You're my Mickey Mouse. They're not very good reasons for loving, but at least there they are. And hey, uh, I'll ask my angel not to, uh, not to erase that in order that we can follow the three reasons. A woman... Doesn't have, never tells you why she loves, she just tells you how. Take, for example, this beautiful poem of Elizabeth Barrett Browning. I'm sure you're familiar with it. How do I love thee? Let me count the ways. I love thee to the depth and breadth 
and height my soul can reach. And feeling out of sight for the end of being an ideal grace. I love thee to the level of every day's most quiet need. Thy sun and candlelight. I love thee freely as men strive for right. I love thee purely as they turn from praise. I love thee with a passion put to use in my old grief and with my childhood's faith. I love thee with a love I seem to lose with my lost faith. I love thee with a breath, smiles, tears of all my life. And if God choose, I shall but love thee better. This also explains why, in a uh, dispute between the two, a man will resort to logic and a woman will resort to tears. A third difference is that defects mar a man's love. Defects do not hurt a woman's love. A man hears somebody talk about a woman that he loves and, or that he's going to marry, and he'll say, well, after all, I've got to know that woman, and I better listen to this. But a woman won't listen. She knows the man has defects. She loves him anyway. Remember the popular song? That's my bill. He's a good-for-nothing blankety-blank-blank-blank, but he's my bill anyway. And I believe that there's something maybe divine in that kind of love because God loves us that way. Despite all of our defects and despite all of our failings. And coming then to a summary of, of knowledge and love. At the beginning, we never can love anybody or anything unless we know that person or know that thing. That is why there has to be, say, an introduction first before there can be the beginning of love. But then after a time, love creates knowledge. How often that happens, for example, in an enduring marriage of a husband and wife. They know one another's moods and attitudes and fears and joys without ever a word being spoken. They've loved one another so deeply that they have created a new kind of knowledge. And so in order to love God, we must first know him. But then, once we know him, we can begin to love him. And that opens up an entirely new field of knowledge that in its greatest height the mystic alone understands. 
And what is true of religion is true of something that is allied to it, namely patriots. We need only to know just a little bit about this great country of ours in order to love it. And please, God, under the inspiration of a little bit of faith and loyalty, we'll all begin to love it much more than we do. God love. Our sincere thanks to the Fulton J. Sheen Company, who has given us permission to share these broadcasts with you today. I invite you to make Bishop Sheen a part of your family audio and video collection. You can call them toll-free at one 866 357 4336 or visit the official website for purchasing Catholic family videos and DVDs of Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen's recordings from the Catholic television series Life is Worth Living. The web address is www.bishopsheen.com You will find rare collections of Catholic family video recordings addressing a variety of topics such as morality, Mary the Mother of God, angels, Catholic Holy Days, and other faith-based subjects. So call toll-free today, 1-866-357-4336. Again, 1-866-357-4336. And on the web, www.bishopsheen.com. Dot com. And on behalf of Bishop Sheen, God love you. You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program, Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith. I might begin by telling you, young people, about the way bishops dress. This is what is known as a choir dress. It is used formally in churches. Then we have another dress, which is really for social purposes, the black cassock and a long, a long scarlet, purple, red garment called a ferriola that reaches all the way to the knees. I was once giving a lecture in Cleveland, and I arrived just a short time before the lecture, and I had nothing to eat. So I asked the members of the committee if they would go with me to the dining room while I had a glass of milk and some graham crackers. And I was dressed in this black cassock and long ferriola. The waitress in the early flirties took the orders of the men that were with me and then she looked at me and she said, well, cock robin, what will you have? Now, this is not the cock robin dress, but let me tell you about this. This is called a rochet, R-O-C-H-E-T, rochet. It is, you see, linen down to the waist and then lace to the knees. I was in the Beverly Wiltshire Hotel in Los Angeles a short time ago, and I went up to my room at night and I found my pajamas on one bed and the rochet on the other. 
I know, it takes a little time to get that, but you do. <laughs> now, a word to you young people. It is very hard for you to realize that your parents lived in a day when no bicycle needed to be locked. When doors were left unlocked at night. When anyone could walk the streets of a large city without being mugged or attacked. Those were days of peace. You have never seen them. It probably is hard for you to realize that that's the way America once was. Now, how did this change come about? Why suddenly have we had so much dishonesty? Let me tell you this story about dishonesty. I was in one of the big hotels of this country. The manager told me that he found the cashier stealing money. This woman had a very wide pocket in her skirt, and she would reach in the drawer and take bills and stick them in. And they saw her, and one day they caught her in the act and discharged her. The union said to her, you may not discharge her. If you discharge her, we will call a strike on the hotel and call everyone out of the hotel. The litigation went on for about three months. The union won. They had to take the girl back. Do you know what their argument was? They said to the hotel manager, did you ever tell that girl it was wrong to steal? No, tell said, no, we never told her it was wrong to steal. Well, then how would she know? See how much the world has changed? Now, what made it change? I think maybe we can pinpoint a date. 8.15 in the morning, the 6th of August, 1945. Can any of you recall what happened on that date? It's history. Before you were born, many of you. Yes, what was it? Which? The war? No. It was the dropping of the bomb on Hiroshima in Japan. When we flew an American plane over this Japanese city and dropped the atomic bomb on it, we blotted out boundaries. There was no longer a boundary between the civilian and the military, between the helper and the helped, between the wounded and the nurse and the doctor, between the living and the dead. For even the living who escaped the bomb were already half dead. So we broke down boundaries and limits. And from that time on, 
the world has said, we want no one limiting me. So that you people heard the song, you've sung it yourselves, I gotta be me, I gotta be free. You want no restraint, no boundaries, no limits. I have to do what I want to do. Now let's analyze that for a moment. Is that happiness? I gotta be me? I've got to have my own identity? Are any of you on a basketball or football team? You can't be yourself, you've got to live for a team. The coach of the Oakland Raiders, Coach Madden, told me, he said, what's happening to our Catholic schools? He said, I have boys from Catholic colleges coming to my football team and they say, I got to do my thing. How am I ever going to have a football team? Everybody has to do his thing. A team means doing the other person's thing. But we want no limits, no boundaries. There was a French play that was written, well, in your lifetime, by Sartre, in which there are three men in hell. And each of them talks about his pains, his aches, his protests, his worries, his ego, his identity. And the others are not listening. When the curtain goes down, the last line of the play is, my neighbor is hell. Why is the neighbor hell? Because he stands in my way. I can't do what I want to do. God is hell. Parents are hell. Church is hell. Why? Because they limit me. So now we're living in a world of just doing your thing without regard for law. Just suppose now to get very practical. Just suppose your parents never gave you pot training. Think it out. You've got to do your thing. <laughs> Two things would happen. Today, you would hate your parents for never having trained you. And secondly, you would hate yourself. So you are what you are today simply because your parents laid hold of you and said, You're go we're going to train you. They didn't allow you to do your thing. Now if I've made myself clear up to this point, you're living in an age where freedom is described as license, the right to do whatever you please. But that's chaos. If everyone did what he drove a car as he pleased, we'd have disorder in the streets. Certainly you can do whatever you please. You can stuff your Aunt Maisie's mattress with old razor blades. You can turn a machine gun on your neighbor's chickens. 
then freedom becomes just a, a physical power. And the one who was most free is the one who was most strong. So the world has changed. We used to have laws. We had obedience. We had discipline. Today, no boundaries, no limits. And you're not happy that way. Now, there isn't a boy here because you are more interested in games than the girls are. But when you play games, and it's true of the girls in a limited way, you have boundaries, you have limits. You've got foul lines on a basketball court. You play baseball, you've got lines running into the outfield. You play football, limits, boundaries. You couldn't have fun if someone, for example, was picked up the football and ran outside of the field. You say, no, you can't do that. We got limits. Well, why don't you respect it in other things? If that's the way you want it in games, why don't you want it that way in life? Then we're happy. Now, what is the one thing in this free world, thanks to the press and television, that is the major interest of the young? It's sex. So let's talk about it. Today, sex has become almost mental. Every advertisement has to use it so that you are inclined always to think about it. What is it, really? Well, the reason you want to know about it is because it's a mystery. What is a mystery? Well, a mystery is a sacrament. As a matter of fact, the Greek word mysterion is the Latin word sacrament and the English sacramentum and the English word sacrament. Now, what is a sacrament? And then we'll understand sex. Every sacrament or every mystery has two elements. First, physical. Secondly, spiritual. Something that is visible, something that is invisible. Take, for example, baptism. What is the physical side of baptism? Water. What is the invisible side of baptism? The cleansing of the soul to make us children of God. A word is a sacrament because there's something audible and then there's something invisible about it, namely the meaning of the word. Take, for example, a pun. I don't know whether I can think of one at the moment, but... Oh, yes, here's one. A little girl was once asked, what are you going to do when you get as big as your mother? And the little girl said, diet. Now, you see, you laughed at that. Now, why did you laugh at that? If, if for example, a horse heard that joke, the, the horse wouldn't give a horse laugh. Why do you laugh? Because in addition to hearing the sound that a horse would also hear, you got meaning out of it. You got purpose. The Eucharist is a sacrament, a mystery. Something you can see, bread. Something invisible, the presence of Christ. 
Sex is a mystery. There is something physical about it. Everyone is either male or female. It's that simple. Period. Not at all complicated. What is the invisible side of sex? What is the mystery? It's a mystery of love. And it stands for something spiritual. First of all, sex stands for God's creative power given to people. So he gives the creative power to a husband and wife. Instead of directly creating us, he says to a father and mother, I will let you share my creative power. And you will give life. This is the spiritual side of marriage and of sex. But it also stands for something else. When you girls and boys get older, someday you'll hear, come to the altar. You'll be married. And there will be a reading from St. Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And this is what you will be told. Every bride stands for the church. Every groom stands for Christ. Think of it. God intended that in marriage, the husband stands for Christ. The bride stands for the church. Does that mean that the, that the man is the head of the woman in the sense of domination? No. The man is the head of the woman in the sense of sacrifice. So as Christ gave himself up for his spouse, his bride, which is the church, so the husband sacrifices himself for the wife. Now, that's the spiritual side of marriage and of sex. It therefore refers to love, human love between husband and wife, the love for God, the love for the church. One of the reasons why it is very difficult for parents ever to teach you the complete mystery of sex is this. They find it very hard. To, they can communicate the physical side. That's nothing. But to communicate to you the mystery, the deep, profound love that is involved, that is something that is almost impossible to describe. The poet said, would that I could utter the thoughts that arise in me when there was love in his heart. And therefore, there will always be a difficulty in the way of explaining to you the mystery. Now, this is what it is. It's God's gift. His creative power. And it's not to be used until God gives the power. Now, for example, where's my lieutenant, Fitzgerald? He's around here someplace. Well, 
Now, Lieutenant Fitzgerald has been with me every day since I've been here. Suppose I took his uniform and put it on. Well, first of all, it wouldn't fit me. But suppose it fit me, fitted me. Well, I would then go out on the street in his uniform and begin directing traffic. I would have no authority to direct traffic, even though I was wearing the uniform. I have to be empowered by civil authority to wear that uniform and direct traffic. And so you have to be empowered to use this mystery. You cannot use it up and by yourself. We're in school, see, that's change of classes. So I'll change my subject now and give you another idea <laughs> to keep you interested. The new idea to which we pass is the difference in which the difference of love in a young man and in a lovely young woman. Now, I hope I can impress you boys and you girls with this difference. It will say particularly you girls. There's a world of difference in which a man loves a woman and a woman loves a man. A world of difference. A boy can love a part of a woman. A woman can love only the whole man. Now that is why, my dear girls, that the boys will talk about your legs. They can love a part of you. They can love a dimple, but then they have to marry a woman. Do you ever talk about boys' legs? Never. You never mention boys' legs. Why? Simply because you're not built that way. Boys different. That's the reason you got to watch the boys. Don't think they love you simply because they love a part of you. But you girls, you're slow to love. And the boys will say, oh, you're cold. You're not cold. You're wise. That's what it is. You can't love until you give yourself totally and completely. So you wait. Therefore, do not rush into marriage. Take your time. Wait and see whether the man is capable of sacrifice or not. And then the man, too, if he spoils you in any way, will not have the same love afterwards as before. There's an interesting story in the scripture, and that is always the place to go for wisdom in understanding human actions. Amnon was in love with the young woman in David's palace, Tamar. And Amnon one day pretended he was sick. And he asked Amnon to bring him some cakes. Amnon brought the cakes. 
and I mean uh, Tamar brought the cakes. Then Ammon assaulted Tamar. And then he said to her, Now get out. Then he called the servants, Lock the door, send her away. And scripture says, The hate with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. In other words, he knew he was guilty. He had spoiled something. He had plucked a young blossom. And he projected the guilt to her as if she herself were guilty. A young girl told me once that a boy had ruined her and on the way back, he gave her a lecture on, you, you've got to watch out for boys. They're not good. They'll pretend they love you. He was trying to escape his guilt. So now we have learned that there's a world of difference between how a man loves and how a woman loves. And wait until you're wise and you're mature. And incidentally, we have a very long maturity. Did you know it in the United States? I think we have the longest juvenility in the world. The Jews, for example, had about the age of 13. Today, you are a man. Yesterday, you were a boy. Now you're growing. But we have people going back and forth from juvenility to maturity and crossing and recrossing the line. So wait until you mature in judgment. And finally, you will often hear among yourselves, boys and girls talking and saying, I don't believe anymore. I'm an atheist. Or I, I, I just can't believe in God and the like. Do not argue with them. I will give you a rule that will help you very much in life. Never pay very much attention to what people say. Pay attention to why they say it. What are they covering up? I was instructing a stewardess on an international airline. And I got up to the subject of confession and she said, now I'll never go to confession after hearing this instruction. I refuse to become a Catholic. Well, I said, take one more lesson. And then at the end of that instruction, you may discontinue. Well, at the end of the next instruction, she was in a veritable creed. She shrieked, screamed, let me out of here. Now I'll never be a Catholic. I said, my dear girl, there's no proportion whatever between what you have heard and the way you're acting. Have you had an abortion? She said, yes. She finished instructions. I later witnessed the marriage and baptized the baby. Do not pay attention to what people say. Why do they say it? Why was she attacking confession? It was her way of escaping her inner guilt, blaming it onto the sacrament. And when you hear young people say, I'm atheist and so forth, do not argue about their faith. 
look into their morals. How are they living? That's the important thing. And hence our blessed Lord said, Blessed are the clean of heart, the pure of heart, for they shall see God. Purity gives us vision. If the window is dirty, the light cannot come in. If our morals are bad, then the faith in the light of God cannot come into us. So keep yourselves clean. Now, you're wonderful young people. And I trust that the Holy Spirit will inspire you to recall some of the things that I've talked to you about today. I've been very frank. And I assume your goodness and that you'll always be good. And for you girls, may I say that there is such a thing as the apostolate of beauty. The apostolate of beauty. Do not be ashamed to think of that. You're young, attractive, but the mere fact that you're young, you're vivacious. Do you realize that when beauty is virtuous, it's far more appealing than anything else? You recognize that I have power, the good Lord has given me the power of word, but he's given to you this other power. And it's more powerful, really, because, as a wise old Greek said, everyone loves beauty. So practice the apostolate of beauty. And as for you, young men, life is hard. It's a struggle. But the Lord will not be failing in his goodness to you. And now with that, I conclude because I don't want to keep you any longer. And I will finish with a story about a priest who was talking on the 12 minor prophets. There are 12 minor prophets in the Old Testament. And he had talked for an hour and 45 minutes and had finished only three. He saw the audience was getting a bit tired. And so he introduced the next one with some degree of histrionics. And he said, and now, and now, where shall I place Habakkuk? Someone got up in the back of the hall and said, he can take my seat. <laughs> You're free now. The Lord love you and bless you and keep you good because you're going to make the church in the next 30 years and we depend on you. Thank you and God love you. You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program Your Life is Worth Living hosted by Al Smith. Well, Radio Maria family, our hour has come to an end and I hope you've enjoyed these reflections from the venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen, I would ask you to encourage to bring a friend with you next time. And until that time, may the good Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord let his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord look upon you kindly and bring you peace. You have been listening to Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith.
here on Radio Maria Canada.